Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now it's time to listen to this week's message. I spent some time back as I was praying and we, we plan our series, we attempt to stay a year out. Um, I knew kind of vaguely where we were going in the month of September, and I sensed very clearly that God began to, to uh, just impress upon my heart that the Spirit of God wanted to say something to our church. And uh, I think it's something that He really wants to develop in each of us, and, uh, and that is to teach us how to pray. Everybody say pray. Listen, I, I want to tell you, if there's ever a place where Jesus' is authority, where Jesus' is saving work, where Jesus' is beauty are to be clearly seen, it should be in our Sunday gatherings. It should be when we come together, and I sense such life and such uh, peace and joy, true, genuine joy in the room this morning. I want to thank our worship team. Didn't they do an amazing job serving and leading us? Would you let them know again how much you appreciate them? Amazing job. And uh, so I I want you, if you didn't receive a message card when you came in, you can raise your hand right quick, and one of our ushers will serve you there in the back. But uh, you can follow along as well. And also in your seat back or, or where you were seated, there is a, Uh, a form that I put together this last week called 28 Days of Prayer. And um, I just want to encourage you over these next four weeks, uh, we're going to ask everyone in the church to take 15, 20 minutes above and beyond their their normal time spending with the Lord to come into a corporate agreement over these areas. Now they're themed. And so I put a scripture with every single day. I put a prayer emphasis with every single day because there's no point in us coming to corporate prayer if we say, hey, let's join our hearts for 28 days and then everybody prays about everything that's different. Jesus said, that's not corporate prayer. He said, what corporate prayer is, if any two agree on one thing, it shall be granted by my Father in heaven. So when you come to corporate prayer meetings, it's not a time to go off and pray what you want to pray. That's not corporate prayer. Corporate prayer is when you come together and you unite your hearts together and saying, God, we are not going to relent until you answer from heaven. And that's what these 28 days are. It's us coming before the Lord. And I I just want to encourage you, if you're brand new to the church or you've not yet got involved in the lifeblood, so to speak, of the church, I understand that completely. I understand most people live their lives. In fact, that's what's normal. Most people live their lives divorced from the local church. And even those who attend the local church, it's no more than Sunday. So I understand that. No condemnation whatsoever. But I'm just going to make it really clear. If there was ever a time for you to give it a try to be involved in the lifeblood of the church, you're looking at the next seven days. You say, Craig, why? Because we believe God's given us a strategy. We don't think it's something that needs to be tested. We've seen God use it to change lives. And everything that we do in our strategy happens in the next seven days. Everything. And so some people say, well, should I go to growth phases or not this Thursday? And what I always find humorous is the people who attend church, um, they, they don't understand my perspective, and sometimes maybe I don't understand their perspective. So what an average church attender considers an, um, just a casual decision, like should I go through growth phases or not, you got to understand your pastoral team is praying, fasting, and has their face in the carpet for weeks for you to make the decision to go. And so what we consider to be casual Those who know and understand it's significant is not casual. We believe God's given us a strategy. Thursday kicks off our growth phase. It's 12 weeks. If you've not been a part, we would encourage you. Give it a try. You say, Craig, I can't come to all night prayer. That's that's eight hours. You don't have to come all night. Come from 10 to 12. But I just forewarn you, you may stay a little later than 12 if you get here. A powerful, powerful time, right? Amazing, amazing moments. Sunday night, a week from tonight. We have another prayer meeting. All of our communities gathering together. I'm gathering, I've gathered students from all middle schools and high schools. We're going to be praying for all of our schools in our community. We're going to be uniting our hearts together with about 10 other churches at New Life Church. And so there's so many opportunities. This Saturday, this Friday, Financial Peace University, there's connect groups tonight. And so I just want to encourage you, 
if, uh, if there was an opportunity for you to engage, this is the week to engage. And you can find all kinds of information out at the Next Steps table uh, as well. Everybody say prayer. God's going to teach us how to pray. Prayer is the most undervalued resource in our lives, in our families, and in our church. It really is. The Bible teaches us that all the blessings that God wants to bestow on us, he does through one means. It's called prayer. God bestows through prayer. In other words, prayer is the conduit by which his power comes into your life, comes into your family, comes into your situation. It's by prayer. Another way we could say this is that prayer is the way that you lay hold of the promises and the blessings of Almighty God. Here's what I've learned about prayer. Is that most people, whether they're religious or not, whether they're believers or not, they pray at crucial points in their lives. They really do. Uh, you may not even really believe in God. I've met a lot of people that don't really believe in God. But, but, but when they get scared or they come to a crisis moment, they start praying. I, I would say that prayer probably unites us more as humans than anything else. What do you mean, Craig? I'm not saying we all pray the same way. We certainly don't all pray in the same amount. But when crisis hits, even non-believers offer up a prayer. They offer up a prayer. I've never seen anybody wake up in the middle of the night, walk to the bathroom, stub their toe, and say, Oh, Muhammad! Oh, Allah! They say, Jesus! They say, God! Right? They offer some type of prayer. They're calling out in some type of desperation. This is the reality. It's, it's called prayer. So where does that impulse come from? As human beings... How can we pray effectively? So over the next four weeks, we're going to look at some figures in Scripture who had profoundly what I call shaping encounters with God, and they got their prayers answered. Every person we're going to look at got their prayers answered. And so what we're going to do is learn from them of how we should pray. First one we're going to look at today is Jacob. Everybody say Jacob. Jacob's story is found in Genesis 32. If you have your Bible, turn there with me. Uh, Genesis chapter 32, not hard to find, first book of the Bible. So just turn all the way to the left if you have your Bible. Genesis 32 is the story of Jacob wrestling all night long with a strange heavenly man of some kind. Now it's supposed to be, among other things, a picture of prayer. But before we get into this text, I want to give a little bit of a background of the story because if we don't understand the background of what's happening, we certainly won't understand this text. Now Jacob, Jacob had cheated his older twin brother. They were twins. His older twin brother was a man named Esau. He had cheated his brother Esau out of his inheritance. In those days, if you're in the Jewish nation, the oldest son got the birthright. What is the birthright, Craig? The birthright meant that if you were the oldest son, you got two-thirds of your father's wealth. If there were six other sons, they, they divided the, the final one-third. Two-thirds of all of the father's wealth always went to the one who received the birthright. And in this case of the family, because he's Jewish, it also meant that, that he also, as the older brother Esau, received the promises that were made to his grandfather Abraham that we looked at in great detail two months ago, that from his lineage would come the Messiah. From the lineage of Abraham would come, in fact, Jesus Christ. Now Esau and Jacob, though they were twins, they were very different. Everybody say different. Esau was macho. Esau was tough. We know he was hairy, the Bible tells us. We know he liked to hunt. He probably watched Sports Center every single night. He drove an F-150. He had a simplified decal in the back window. He had season tickets to the local UFC arena. He got his nose punched many times, and he was a character off of Doug Dynasty. That, my friends, is Esau. Jacob, on the other hand, was more of an indoors guy. He had smooth skin. He used lotion every day. He liked to cook. 
He watched The Bachelor on Monday nights. He drove a Mini Cooper, and he had a Pinterest account. This was Jacob. Now, Esau and Jacob are very much clear, different uh, uh, pictures in Scripture. They, in fact, are juxtaposed to be two totally different men. Well, one day, Esau and Jacob were teenagers, and Esau had been out hunting, and he came in, and he was really, really hungry. Esau came in, and in fact, the Bible says he was famished. Jacob had just finished cooking a pot of stew. Mmm, lentil stew. How, how teasing, right? I mean, this whole big pot of lentil stew, and Esau asked him for some. Well, Jacob, he's being the younger brother, and what do younger brothers always do? They always look for a way to get the upper hand on the older sibling. Every brother does it. Every sister does it. They're trying to find ways to get the upper hand. So he, he begins to ask his older, hairier twin. He says, uh, I'll trade you something for the bowl. And Esau said, like what? Now, Jacob, knowing that as a younger brother, you got to start somewhere high to get a good place to negotiate from. When you go onto the car lot, you can't start. You know, the, the salesman's not going to start really low. He's got to start really high. That's how they get you to come to the car lot. And so the younger brother understands this, so he's going to start really high. And uh, he says, how about your birthright? Two-thirds of all of our father's inheritance. Probably thinking he would never get it. To be honest with you, most commentators agree with me. That Jacob had absolutely no faith whatsoever that he would get the birthright. He was just thinking, you know, maybe if I ask for a birthright, I'll get some Air Jordans. Maybe I'll get an iPod. I'll get something, you know. So let's start really high. And so he says, how about your birthright? Well, Esau being a teenager, come on, mamas and daddies, help me out right here. And teenagers who characteristically think impulsively like they do, they're they're concerned only with short-term gratification and not the long-term effects of their decisions. Can I hear an amen? So they're, they're thinking impulsively. They then say, well, what is good? Esau says, well, what good is my birthright to me if, if I die of hunger this afternoon? Yep, I'll give you my birthright. Just give me some soup. And so he traded his birthright for a bowl of beans. My phone, friends, this is the top, at least for me, the top ten saddest stories in all the Bible. But it's a picture so accurate of our culture today. Willing to sacrifice the future on the altar of momentary satisfaction. Well, a few years passed by. A few years pass by and their dad, Isaac's about to die. So Isaac, who probably doesn't know anything about the deal, he doesn't understand the deal in terms of what they've worked out. He prefers Esau to Jacob anyways. The scripture tells us very clearly. He wants to formally now confer the blessing onto Esau. So he asked Esau, he said, hey son, you're the hunter. Go out into the wild. I want you to go get me some deer, get some venison for me uh, and, some, and some whatever you want to get and prepare it for me. And then you come in and give it to me in my room and I'll confer the blessing to you. So Esau leaves. He goes hunting. Now Jacob, the younger brother, he now gets into a manipulative battle with his mother. In fact, Rebecca's a part of the deal. Rebecca's a little bit, little bit backwards here. In fact, they think, okay, here's our chance. This is how we're going to get, uh, we're going to trick Isaac. And so they pull some venison out of the freezer. They microwave it. They dress up uh, Jacob like Esau. You see, Isaac's very old. In fact, the Bible said his eyes are dull. He can't hear that really well. So they put Jacob in Esau's clothes. And the Bible says they literally strap goat hair on the back of his arms. And they strap goat hair on the back of his neck and rub venison all over him. I'm not sure really entirely what that says about Esau. Like if, they want, if you want to be mimicked, they put goat hair all over somebody and you smell like goat. I'm not sure what Genesis is trying to tell us here. But nonetheless, they put goat hair all over the back of his arms. And he goes into his brother, not sure, you know, understanding what's going to happen. And he gets his deepest voice and he goes in and he deceives his dad. And he gets the conferred hand of blessing from his father. Somehow they pull it off. 
Esau gets home, he finds out the blessing's already been bestowed, and there is no reneging after a formal bestowal, particularly in the Jewish culture, because the last thing you did in a Hebrew bestowal is you raised your pinky and you said, no take backs. I'm just kidding about that part. Y'all ever do that in kindergarten? No take backs. But, but, but in the Jewish culture, you could never renege this. So the blessing and inheritance now belong to Jacob. Well, as you can imagine, Esau's pretty chapped. It's a bad day for Esau. He says, I'm going to let my dad die. I'm going to give the family some space to mourn. And then I'm going to kill my brother. I'm going to murder him. Jacob hears about that. And in great wisdom, he leaves. Jacob takes off on the run, folks. We don't see any more Christmas family reunions or any more Friday night dinners for 30 years. Jacob and Esau are separated. No conversation. No connection. But because he's pretty ingenious and crafty, he gets ahead and Jacob gets really, really wealthy. His name Jacob, by the way, means grasper. Everybody say grasper. It means someone who strives. Because when the twins were coming out of the womb, the Bible said that Esau came out first, but Jacob's little hand came right out before his body came out came right up out of the womb, and he grabbed an attempt to grab the heel of Esau, essentially saying, get back in here. I come out first. But the name Jacob means grasper. The name Jacob means striver. The name Jacob also means deceiver. It means deceiver. Those two things and meanings pretty much well sum up all of Jacob's life. All he did was grasp, strive, and deceive. All he did was grasp, strive, and cheat. By the way, I never understood why you'd give that name to a baby, right? It's like, oh, that baby's so cute. What are you going to name him? Liar. <laughs> you know, I don't understand that, but, but this happens a lot of Bible stories. Like, what are you going to, I'm going to name him Liar. He, he looks like a great liar, you know. But they name him Liar. No offense if you're uh, a James, which is a derivative of Jacob, or if you're a Jacob, like a Trent Jacob in the room. No offense whatsoever. Jacob doesn't mean that anymore. I don't want to hate on Jacob. Well, something, something during this time, of 30 years, God began to work in Jacob's life. And I, after 30 years of being separate from his family, he says, I'm now going to return to the land of my fathers. And, and he said, if he does, he said, God will be with him. In fact, Genesis 31.3 says that God spoke to him and said, you could go back to the land of your father. Now, Jacob obeys, but now as he's getting close to his home, where he hadn't been for 30 years, he starts to wonder. Anybody ever started to wonder what the person's going to say? You're looking for reconciliation, but you're wondering how the conversation's going to go. And so he starts thinking, and then he gets word that Esau has come out to meet him with 400 armed men. That is never a good sign, folks. When your brother get news that your brother is coming to meet you with 400 armed men, Jacob is pretty wealthy, but he forgot to bring his whole army. His whole army is back home, so he is in total despair. So he prays. Craig, this is how we're kicking off the series on prayer. Genesis chapter 32, verse 9. Oh, God of my father, Abraham, and my God, or, father, or God of my father, Isaac, oh, Lord, who said to me, you said to me, Lord, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. You hear what he's doing? He's holding up God's word in front of God and saying, God, you said, God, you said you'd do me good. God, you said, I'm scared to death. I'm in despair. He's got 400 men coming out to me. But you said, God, you would do me good. Going to verse 10. He said, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. He's speaking to, of himself. Verse 11. He said, please deliver me. He says to God, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. God, in case you forgot who my brother was, because maybe you're like me and a human, and 30 years later you forget who he was. So I want to tell you, God, make sure you understand he's my brother. For I fear him that he may come and attack me. God, I, I'm fearful that my brother's going to come kill me. 
Verse 12. But you said, God, I will surely do you good, and I will make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Did you just see what he did in his prayer? Not one time, but two times. He's holding God's word back up in God's face and said, God, you promised. God, you said it. God, you already declared it. God, you already decreed it. God, you said you'd do me good. He begins to say, God, I'm asking you to keep your word. God, I'm asking you to do what you said you would do. You said you would bless me, so I'm putting my word, your word back in front of your face. But notice what he's praying, church. What's he praying for? He's praying for deliverance. God, get me out of this mess, and don't let Esau kill me. You need to put that away in your hat, because we're going to come back to it, and that's going to be the most powerful point I can give you today. He's praying for deliverance. He's asking for deliverance. Well, later that night, look at verse 24. A man came and wrestled with Jacob all the way until dawn. And when the man saw that he couldn't win the match, time out. Verse 25 is one of the strangest verses in all the Bible. Give me some visual support behind me here, guys. When he saw that he could not win the match. You got it in front of you on your Bible. Open it up there in front of you. He could not win the match. He struck Jacob's hip, and he knocked out the hip at the joint socket. He knocked the hip right out of place. Do you know how painful that would be, by the way? Have ever dislocated their finger, taking it out of socket? I've done that multiple times playing basketball. That hurts, man. That thing is painful. You know the largest joint in your body is your hip. And the Bible says this man just touched it. What kind of strength is this? This man touched his hip and his hip came straight up out of its socket. This guy has some kind of power. Verse 26. Then the man said, let me go for it is dawn. But Jacob panted, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Which, by the way, this impresses me about Jacob, if I can pause here. All that stuff about Esau and UFC I said earlier. When you can hold on to an angel, when your hip's been knocked out of joint, that's varsity, folks. In fact, that's all state. That ain't JV. That ain't freshman team. He's holding on to this angel. He's a grasper. That's what he does. Verse 27. What's your name, the man asked. He replied, Jacob. Which to me is really kind of humorous. Oh, this angel just cruising down from heaven. He don't know who he's going to pick a fight with. He's just going to pick a dude. What's your name? Don't, don't, don't gloss over that. Like, what's your name, bro? I've been wrestling with you for six hours, but might as well ask your name. God knows his name. What's he doing? He's getting Jacob for the first time in his life to repent and confess who he is. What is your name? What's your name, deceiver? What's your name, cheater? What's your name, Jacob? What is your name, striver? Jacob says, I'm a striver, I'm a cheater, I'm a liar. That's how I've gotten everywhere in life. I'm ready for life to change. Verse 28, your name, the angel said, or God said, your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. It is now Israel, which literally means you have prevailed with God. Israel means you are in a wrestling match with God. Israel means you struggled with God. And in fact, you struggle with God and man and have won, verse 28 said. Verse 29, and Jacob asked him, what is your name? And the man replied, why do you ask? I don't know. You just tore my hip socket out of joint. I'm going to have to go to physical therapy the rest of my life. You changed my birth name to a different name. And I thought it would be helpful when I tell the story for the rest of my life to tell them who, who met me. 
Why do you ask? Why do you ask what my name is? Now, the scripture doesn't tell us whether or not the man told Jacob his name or not. But we do get the next phrase, which is extremely important, verse 29. Then the man blessed Jacob there. So multiple questions. Who is this man? Who is wrestling with Jacob? You know, some Jewish commentators around Jesus' time thought this was Esau's guardian angel that went in front of Esau to wrestle down Jacob to get the blessing back from Jacob and bring it back to Esau. That, my friends, is, is kind of ridiculous. Sorry, Jewish commentators at Jesus' time, but that's not a good interpretation whatsoever. Some don't go that far. Some say that was an angel that wrestled Jacob. Maybe. Not really lean that way. You say, Craig, why not? Why does the angel have to leave at daybreak? Don't really make sense. He's not a vampire. Not Edward Colin. Angels love light. Oh, maybe choir practice in heaven starts at dawn. I don't know. <laughs> you know like, well, I don't think it was an angel. You say, Craig, what do you think it is? Who do you think it was? Well, I think, and most theologians think, it is actually God. It's actually God. I think the strongest clues in our next verse, if you look at the text with me, verse 30. Jacob named the place Peniel, face of God, for he said, I have seen not an angel. I have not seen God's strong man. I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. This is what we call a theophany. I put it in your card there for you. Theophany is a manifestation or appearance of God. Theologically, we call these Christophanies. A Christophany is an appearance of Jesus is before he's born to Mary in Bethlehem. So Jesus makes an appearance, for instance, in Joshua chapter 6. We see him when he crosses the Jordan River before he, he comes to Jericho. So we see that a Christophany is when Jesus comes to earth and makes an appearance, though not in flesh, before he was born in flesh. So the question now becomes, if Jacob is wrestling with God, how does God not win? That, my friends, is an amazing question. I'll come back to it. How do you wrestle with God and not win? Not have God win. We'll say it that way. But first, let me finish the story. Jacob, with his new name, goes on to meet Esau. Somewhere as they approach, God changes Esau's heart because God can do that. Come on, somebody say amen. And when Esau sees his brother, God changes his heart. He runs to embrace him. All the 400 soldiers stay back, and they stand there weeping in each other's arms for hours. Jacob and Esau weep on each other's necks for hours. Jacob's not only going to be reconciled to his brother, he's going to become the father of the Jewish nation, and one of his descendants would actually be Jesus Christ. His great, 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 great grandson would be Jesus Christ. Now, Craig, what is God trying to teach us through this story? I'm going to identify five things that God teaches us about prayer. I'm going to tie everyone to prayer because how does this story start? It starts when Jacob starts to pray. And then the angel, the, 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 the man, the heavenly man comes from heaven to wrestle him. Okay? Starts with prayer. Starts with prayer. Number one thing we learn is the blessings of God are released into our lives through prayer. The blessings of God are released into our lives through prayer. Think about the phrase I called your attention to in verse 29. It says there that the man blessed him. After Jacob held on to him and said, I won't let you go until you bless me. If you go back and read the beginning of the story, you find that through Rebekah, God had already prophesied at Jacob's birth that the blessing would be his. When Jacob was born, he already said Jacob would, would receive the blessing. But catch this. Even though the blessing had already been decreed, it wasn't until Jacob took it into, to God in prayer in a wrestling match that it really became his. In other words, God can decree a blessing of your life, but the blessing doesn't become yours in actuality until you learn what it means to wrestle with God all 
night long until you learn what it means to wrestle with God to procure what God had already purchased for you on the cross to become yours in actuality. In other words, Jacob laid hold of the promise of God through a night of prayer. That's when the blessing became his. Did you know, church, this Bible, the Bible that you hold in your lap, is a book full of promises. Did you know how many promises are in there? There's around 3,000 promises in the Scripture. Now, I know some of them, I understand this, apply to specific and certain situations in the life of Israel. I understand that. I understand that very well. But I also know that the Apostle Paul says this. He said, all, all, all means all, and that's all that all means. All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? That means every promise that is 3,000 plus in the scripture, every single one of them in a Christ-centered way is for me. It is for my life. It is for my family. It is for my situation. At our prayer night last, last uh, February, I told the group that came together for all night prayer, I said, it's awesome to read through the Bible. Reading through the Bible is great. But this year, I don't want to just ask you and challenge you to read through the Bible. I want you to pray through the Bible. I don't want you just to read. I want you to pray through it. I want you to pray through the Bible. You know what that Bible is? That's our prayer book. That's our prayer book. It's our prayer book to read and to lay hold of the promises of God. In fact, this is what I do. Did you know this is the number one spiritual discipline that's in my life in terms of getting into prayer? Here's what I do. When it's time for me to go into time of prayer, first thing I do before I read the Bible is I go to the Lord in prayer. And I say, God... This is not some dead words on a book. This is your word. This is a, a living word. This is absolutely uh, so sharp it could divide between soul and spirit. So it's not some dead archaic words. It's your word for me today. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm about to read my text. It's in my Bible reading plan, God. You know it from the foundation of the world. I'm going to read it. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to help me identify the promises that are in the text I'm about to read. And by faith, let faith rise up in my heart that I can appropriate and believing prayer believe that what I read today shall be mine in Jesus Christ. Then I start reading. I read my 15, 20 minutes. I read through my passage. I start doing my journaling. I start working through the passage. And then what happens? I begin to then ask, God, would you allow this promise to be mine? So my question for you today is this. Which blessings of God are unclaimed for you and your family? Which of the 3,000 promises are you living as a pauper? You should be living as a king. This is how I pray. I'm going to give you a few examples. I just want to make this series very relevant and very practical. Here's how I pray for my kids every day. What does Psalm 127 say? When I go to the Lord and pray for my kids, Psalm 127 says very clearly, Psalm 127, Behold, children are heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. The fruit of the womb, a reward. That's what I always start with. I say, God, your word says that leave it up there. Your children, the children are a heritage. They're a fruit of the womb is a reward. And so I, it's a great verse to remind me that these kids, the blessed, God, this is God blessing my house. It feels like it's overflowing with children at times, right now especially, but I just got to remind myself that it's actually a blessing from the Lord. My house being overflowing with kids and bean bags and, and messes and juice cups and Marley, who is the messiest human being on the planet, and her brother, who's absolutely the most OCD straight line dude on the planet that doesn't work too well on most days all right and so when we talk about my house I'm thinking God the children my house overflowing is a reward from you 
But then what he says, he said, children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. What does that mean? An arrow is to be put in a bow. It's to be pulled back and to be shot right into the heart of the enemy. So you know what I say? I say, God, you gave me these kids for the purpose of bringing them up so I can shoot into the very destiny of their future. I can shoot into the heart of their culture, shoot into the heart of the enemy and satanic devices on their life, their generation, their future. So God, I'm going to keep pulling them back. That's what you said. You got, you caused my wife to be pregnant so Knox would be an arrow into the heart of the enemy. You caused what Mary to be pregnant why so that Harper could be an arrow right into the heart of the enemy for her generation so every day I get before God you imagine what God's faith does you imagine what God's heart does when his child when his son when his daughter reads his word and throws his word back up in front of his face and says God every child you've given me Lord is to be shot forward to the destiny of God for their life this is prayer This is what Jacob's doing. Jacob is just throwing up God's word in front of his face. He's just saying, and listen, there's so many days, folks. Meredith and I don't have the foggiest idea of what we're doing as parents. We broke down twice this last week and and crying and just saying, what in the world is Marley needing from us in this season? Is she jealous because of the younger baby? What is she doing? Why is she acting out? Why is she being ugly? What is happening? And listen, more more times than not, I feel like I'm messing my kids up. Be honest with you, I feel like I'm screwing them up. But you know what? At the end of the day, I can say, God, you have allowed me to have children and these children God according to your word is that these children would raise up and they would be arrows in the hands of their father and they would be sent into the destiny that you've called them to so Lord let me Lord Jesus be used for for fostering whatever purpose you have for them now I've just caught God's attention because I've taken his prayer and thrown it in front of his face how do I pray for me Psalm 84 11 is when I pray for my life Almost daily. Psalm 8411 says, There is no good thing does the Lord withhold from them who walk uprightly. One of the biggest fears of my life, one of the things that I constantly go through in my head, what if I can't handle this church, God? God, with the blessing, what if I can't handle a movement? What if I can't handle? What if I fall into temptation? What if I fall? What if I ruin my reputation? What if I lose my marriage? What if my kids grow up and become hellions and everybody in the church looks at the kid who's a hellion and thinks, well, how in the world can he manage his own household? God, what, what, what your favor's on this church right now, but, but a bigger church is going to bring newer challenges. What if I mess up as a pastor? What if I mess my family up? What if, God? What, what, what if I mess up there? What if I mess up all of you? What does the Bible say? No good thing does he withhold from them who walk uprightly. What does that mean? That means, God, I say to you, you said you wouldn't withhold one single thing. So right now, I need your wisdom to lead this family. And God says, okay, it's yours because that's what your Bible says. Your word says you, wouldn't, you would not withhold nothing. You need wisdom? You ask the Lord, and he is obligated to fulfill his word. You throw his word in front of his face. I need financial provision right now. God says, with my wisdom, I'll give you financial financial provision because there is no good thing that we he withholds from those who walk uprightly so how do I pray for me I, I lift up Psalm 84 11 how do I pray for you one of the most common prayers I pray for you and I say you individual and I say you corporately Deuteronomy 33 16 it's a verse about Joseph Joseph the Bible says walked in the favor of the one who dwelled in the burning bush is there a cooler phrase in all the scripture Joseph dwelt in the favor of the one who dwells in the burning bush. Who's the one who dwells in the burning bush? God. said so the Bible says that Joseph dwelt in the favor of God all of his days. You understand why I pray this over our church? Because we as a church, we've experienced his blessing, have we not? And one of the things I always ask myself is what if it runs out? 
What if it runs out one day? What if three years from now it runs out? What if the energy runs down? What if we're too far away now from the church planning stage and the energy and the excitement runs down? God, what if, the, what if the favor runs out? Is it possible to dwell in favor all of your life? According to Scripture, yes, because Joseph did it. Is it possible for a church to dwell in favor from the moment it begins to the moment it ends? Absolutely. Why? So that, you know, the Bible says, God, I'm asking that we, I'm asking that we as dwelling place church, what? We would dwell in favor all the days of our life. Why? We would dwell in the favor of the one who is in the burning bush, who was with Moses and who will be with us. There and again, Jacob, in that first prayer, he held up the promises to him twice. And he said, God, you promised. God, you promised. God, you promised. What promises have left, been left unclaimed for your family? I read an article on NPR this week. Every year, $5.8 billion worth of gift cards go unclaimed. I'm going to say it again. $5.8 billion in America go unclaimed through gift cards. What does that mean? That means the gift card was purchased. The gift card was paid for. The benefits have already been purchased. The benefits are waiting to be received. The benefits are waiting to be acted on. The benefits are waiting to be appropriated. But they never get enjoyed. How many believers who never read the word of God, who never lift up God's promise in front of his face, live with unclaimed blessings? Live as paupers in a kingdom where he wants us to live as kings and princes. What blessings have been left unclaimed for your family? All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That's what Psalm 23 said. It's all been purchased by Jesus' blood. If you could hold up your Bible right now, you could hold up your Bible and say, you know what? These promises won't be actualized until I wrestle with God all night by believing prayer. I'm going to have to wrestle. Right in your Bible are 3,000 gift cards purchased by Jesus' blood for you, and they're just waiting to be used. 3,000 gift cards. 3,000 plus promises. Here's the second point we learn from Jacob. Sometimes the blessings of God are released in our lives through persistent prayer. Sometimes the blessings of God in our lives, the blessings of God are released in our lives through persistent prayer. Martin Luther, he was the great reformer. He lived 500 years or so ago. He said that this story of Jacob wrestling with God gives us a picture, listen, listen, of wrestling with a seemingly hostile God in prayer. True? I mean, come on. You're praying one night and a dude from heaven comes down and starts beating you up? That's pretty hostile, right? That seems hostile. Luther, by the way, Martin Luther, the reformer, he points out that this is a common image in Scripture. This is a little disturbing. Most of you have seen this in Scripture, but you had not had enough courage to say it. I know I didn't because I thought it was a inconsistent with God's character. You've seen this. Trust me. God is seemingly indifferent to your prayers. When God is seemingly doesn't care about what you're asking. When God is seemingly hostile in prayer. What do you mean, Craig? Remember the Syrophoenician woman in Luke chapter 8? She came to Jesus to get healing for her daughter. She's a Gentile. She's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. Jesus ministering to the Jews. She comes to Jesus, Luke chapter 8. Says, hey, my daughter needs healing. What does Jesus say to her? He said, woman... It's not right that I take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. The disciples are like, ooh, he called her a dog. He called her a dog. Woo! He called that chick a dog. 
called a woman a dog? Follow me. I'm going to give you several of them in Scripture. That's seemingly like when you're taking your needy situation to a God who's compassionate, and yet he seems indifferent. Quite honestly, he seems a little bit antagonistic. He seems a little bit hostile. How in the world? And, and, and commentators, by the way, this is a tough one, right? This is a tough one. So com- commentators for centuries said, oh, with well, the word Jesus is used, it's like a small puppy. Yeah, but it's a, still a dog, folks. A dog's a dog, whether it was a puppy or a grown dog. So what's Jesus saying? It's not proper in Jewish culture to call anybody a dog. Why? Because dogs are unclean. So what's happening? By the way, if you read this story, he's going to end up healing her. But can we just agree that when she first brings her need to the Lord, he appears hostile and indifferent to her at first. Can we agree with that? Okay, let's go to the next one, Luke chapter 18. Jesus said, he said, prayer is like this. He said once to his disciples, he said, prayer is like this old poor widow. This old poor widow ain't got a dollar to her name, and she needed justice on someone who's done her wrong. She can't get the judge to pay her attention because she's poor and can't find a lawyer. She can't afford a lawyer. So she's got to bribe the judge. The Bible says the judge doesn't care anything about God, doesn't care anything about her, doesn't care anything about justice. It's what Jesus said. This is Jesus speaking. I'm so glad Jesus said this story, not me. Okay, Just follow what Jesus said. He said this, this judge has absolutely no concern for God, and so here's what this woman does. She doesn't, can't afford a lawyer, so she goes to his house day and night. And just when he gets in bed at night, she goes to the front door and she goes, Hey, it's me. Can I get justice for my situation? He's like, get away from my house. I'm going to call the cops on you, lady. Leave. The Bible says she won't give up. She says, okay, I'll be back in the morning. He gets up in the morning, gets ready, puts on his suit and tie, gets ready to go to the business office. He walks out his front door, and she's standing right there next to the car. And she's like, hey, did you uh, get a chance to uh, did you get a chance to deal with it? Uh, did you get a chance to take care of that? And he's like, what in the world is this lady doing? And Jesus continues on to this, and the next night she just knocks three times. And, and this judge says, I don't care about God. This is Jesus saying, I don't care about God, I don't care about this woman, I don't care about justice, but I am going to give her what she needs because I'm tired of hearing her complain. And Jesus says, this is exactly what prayer's like. What? Jesus says, this is like Prayer? Luke 18, the judge says, I don't care a thing about this woman, but this woman is flat worn be down, so I'm going to give her what she asks. That appears that God is hostile and indifferent to our request. Jesus says that's what prayer's like. You know, that's one of those stories I'm glad Jesus tells. What's he trying to say? Is he trying to say God is like that judge? I mean, God is clearly not someone who doesn't care about us. God is clearly not someone who doesn't care about justice. The cross shows us that. He's trying to show you that prayer feels that way sometimes. Prayer feels like God is deaf. Prayer feels like he's indifferent. Prayer feels like you're bouncing up against a wall. And he's trying to say that God often appears hostile and uncaring and indifferent to us. Have you ever had that experience, somebody? If not, you've never prayed or you're a liar. Really? All of you should say yes. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to pray. I mean, sometimes I'll pray and God does the opposite. He'll put me through like a six-month season where everything I ask, he does the opposite. It's like, God, would you stop working in my life for Jesus Christ's glory? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, come on. Like, I mean, seriously. Like, I'm praying and then you're, what are you doing, God? Folks, let's be real as humans. We know what it's like. 
to pray and not have God answer. Luther says God is like this. And then he writes something that is absolute gold that makes me want to speak in tongues and run around my house. He said, he does so, Luther says, to see the strength of our faith in his goodness. He does so to see the strength of our faith in his goodness. He says, will we press, I'm, I'm speaking of Luther. He says, will we press through what looks like hostility to actually see the rushing river of God's goodness that runs underneath the appearance of hostility, the appearance of indifference? Oh, catch this. He said, like a child that's trying to push against the hand of a parent and the parent only gives enough resistance to try to keep the child to continue to push. He said, God, through prayer, begins to put out his hand so that we as his children will begin to push up against his hand. Why? Well, going to test to see the resolve of the child so God resists us in prayer to see our resolve in his goodness how faithful how much faith do we have that he's a good God and Luther pointing to the story of Jacob says we should try to catch Christ in his own words Woo! I love Martin Luther he said catch Christ in his own words have you ever tried to catch Christ in his own words in other words you take his words and you throw them back in front of his face and say I caught you Jesus <laughs> you said it's not your will, will that any of my family members should perish so I'm standing on your word today and I want to keep with resolve and, and have faith in the goodness of Almighty God, that there is an unending river of your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your love that is meant for my family, that is meant for my lovers, I love loved ones, that is meant for my wife, that is meant for my son, my daughter. And see, some of you in here, you, 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 it seems like at this, at this season that God's distant or uncaring. I want to tell you, it's actually just an illusion. And God's just asking if you'll push harder on his hand. <laughs> Woo! Some answers, church. I don't know why God does it, but some answers are only given after a night of prayer. That's just the way God set up his economy. He don't, he don't allow some answers to come by you just asking one time. He set it up where you got to push up against his hand and keep on believing in the, in the goodness of God and keep on persistent. So, and, and through your patience, let me tell you, church, you'll see his goodness. Through your patience and persistence, you'll continue to push through what seems like resistance to find the unending river of God's goodness, God's love, God's mercy for your life. Why, Craig? Because this is the same God who went through the darkness of Gethsemane. He went through the pain of Golgotha for you. So he's asking you to press through. Don't stop. He's compassionate for you. Do you feel like he doesn't care about your broken marriage? Do you feel like he doesn't care about your unsaved husband? Do you feel like he doesn't care about your wayward child? Do you feel like he doesn't care about your lost friends? No, no, the cross proves that he cares about your lost friends. The cross proves that he cares about your marriage. Let me give you something. The cross is the measure of God's compassion for us. And the resurrection is the measure of the power he uses to save us. And so if you need to understand what God said in the cross is that I'm compassionate for every life. There's not a person that I don't want saved. And my resurrection is the measure of the power I'll use to save your wayward husband. To save your wayward son. To save your wayward family member. God says it's my resurrection power. If you'll push with persistence and get past the resistance what you'll find is not indifference from God what you'll find is the benevolence of the eminence what you'll find is the benevolence of a God who spoke the world into creation don't you ever doubt God's goodness there's so much grace that flows through that appearing hostility that appearing indifference there's so much grace that even if you're like the Syrophoenician woman who said yes that's right maybe I'm not worthy but listen everybody in the father's house gets a little bit of bread so if you'll just give me a little bit of bread it'll save my whole family so I'm gonna come to you maybe I'm not a little worthy Maybe I'm not like the king at the table, but let me just get up under the table a little bit. And if I can get a piece of bread, the Syrophoenician woman said, she said, my life will be changed. That's persistent prayer. 
That's persistent prayer. That's where God says, you want to you find my blessing? You begin to persist. The compassion of God, church, is measured by the cross. And his power for your situation is measured by his resurrection. He can help you, and he will help you. He can help you, and he will help you. I read a book a couple of weeks ago. I read some things, interestingly enough, about persistence. About 10 years ago, the very elite Berlin Academy of Music did a study with musicians. And uh, they divided the accomplished violinists into three groups. World-class soloists, high-level performers, and then those who were good but unlikely to play professionally. They found that all three groups of the violinists started playing violin at roughly the same age. And all three groups practiced roughly the same amount of hours until the age of eight. At the age of eight, the three different groups, their practice habits greatly diverged. The researchers found, Rhett catch this, by the age of 20, the average players had logged 4,000 hours of practice on a violin. 4,000. The good, the, the good violinists uh, the, the violinist, uh, logged 4,000 hours. The good violinists, on top of that, the average players, the good violinists totaled about 8,000 hours. But the elite performers, the third group, 10,000 hours they had put in on the violin. And this is what this man says. While there is no denying that innate ability dictates some of your upside potential, your potential is massively only tapped via persistent effort. He said persistence is the magic bullet, not aptitude. He cites a neurologist who I love, a neurologist named Daniel Levitin. And Daniel Levitin says this. He says, the emerging picture from such studies is that 10,000 hours of practice is required to achieve the level of mastery associated with being a world-class expert. In anything. In study after study, you said of composers, basketball players, fiction writers, doctors, ice skaters, concert pianists, chess players, master criminals, which if you're a criminal, just keep working at it, or what have you, this number comes up again and again. Listen, no one has yet found a case on earth in which true world-class expertise was accomplished in less than 10,000 hours. In other words... To get the victory, you got to be willing to press through. It's no different in prayer. There are some things that God only gives through persistence. Like a child trying to push through the hand of a parent, the parent only gives enough resistance to test the resolve of the child. To test the resolve, the dedication of the child, so God resists us in prayer to see our resolve in his goodness. You believe in God's goodness. How many of you believe in God's goodness? You do. I've got a question for you. Does the judge know about you? Is that judge up in heaven saying, oh my God, she will not leave me alone about that person. She will not leave me alone. She will not, he will not leave me. Does the judge know about you? Does the judge know about you? Here's the third thing we read. The blessings of God are not obtained by our contriving. The blessings of God are not obtained by our contriving. I pointed out that when the guy asked Jacob, God asked Jacob what his name is, the point is that he doesn't know Jacob's name, right? He knows Jacob's name. Of course he does. He wants Jacob to admit it. And so Jacob says, my name is Jacob. I'm a liar, God. Now, remember when Jacob had taken the venison to his daddy? You remember that in the story I told you he stole the conferred blessing? What had he done? His dad, his dad asked him what his name was, and what did he say my name was? He said, my name is Esau. We don't have any indication in the text that for 30 years he had ever gone back and actually quoted and confessed who he really was. He said, my name is Esau, and he lied. Now he tells the truth. He says, my name is Jacob, God. I'm a deceiver. I'm a supplanter. 
I'm a striver, I'm a grasper. I tried all my life to obtain the blessings for myself by my own manipulative means, and so now I'm repenting. And when he's willing to repent, God says, I'm going to give you a new name, Israel, which speaks of God giving the blessing and not him wrestling for it himself. It's God, not our contriving, that gives the blessing, and so God grants the blessing. And you say, Craig, this blessing is a a little bit bigger than what he needed, right? Yep, this blessing's so big, God is going to give him a blessing that's so far beyond anything Jacob had sought for himself. In fact, Jacob's new name, Israel, is going to appear 1,800 times in the Bible. His new name is going to be 1,800 times, and it's going to include blessings that are beyond anything his mind could ever fathom, not just for him, but for the whole world. Some of you in this room, you've spent your whole life striving, spent your whole life deceiving, spent your whole life wrestling and worrying and, and, and trying to get some blessing, some blessing that you desire. And the blessing, I want to tell you, that you're searching for is not going to come from those things. It's not going to come from your contriving. It's not going to come from your manipulation. It's going to come by submitting. It's not going to come by wrestling. It's going to come by submitting. In other words, winning the blessing comes only by losing to God. (laughs) That's what the story is to teach us. You win the blessing by losing to God. You win the blessing by submitting. That's why some people are so tired. And for the rest of Jacob's life, he's going to limp on his torn hip socket. Reminding him that winning the blessing came from losing to God. Winning the blessing came from losing to God. It's only through losing to God that he began to win the blessing. Some of you, if you could just be honest this morning, that's exactly where you are. Has God torn your hip socket apart to show you that? Anybody ready for your life to be turned upside down? Then you've got to be ready to lose. And some of you, I want to speak prophetically because this is what I sensed when I was praying. Some of you, that's exactly where you are. And God's trying to show the way you've gone about trying to get the blessing is the wrong way. It will not come by anything you attempt in your own manipulative means or strategic way to achieve. It comes by losing through submission. Losing. James 4 and 2, look what the Bible says. You desire and you don't have, you murder. You coven, you can't obtain, so you fight in court. Why do you not have it? Because you hadn't asked for it. Wow, what a verse. Wow, what a verse. You covet and you cannot obtain the blessing you so desire. And you don't have because you don't ask. The blessing comes not by your contriving, but by losing to God. Here's number four. God himself is the primary blessing that we seek. God himself is the primary blessing that we seek. Can I get a keys player? Notice that at the end of this encounter, God does not say to Jacob, okay, everything's going to be fine. Go meet Esau. Is anybody reading the text where God says to Jacob after he wrestles, hey, just go meet Esau. Everything's going to be good. No. You know what God says to Jacob after he wrestles with him all night long? He said simply, go, I'm with you. Did you know that Jacob didn't even have the promise that he was actually going to live through the encounter with Esau? Listen, don't miss that part. He did not get the promise from God that he's going to live through this encounter. God just simply says, I'll be with you. You go meet your brother, I will be with you. What are you saying, Craig? God has made him limp now. So if he'd have met him yesterday and he got his tail beat, at least he could turn, tuck his tail, and he could run away. Now he can't run away. God has not, let me give this to our 21st century empoweristic 
business mindset. God has not empowered him to reach his potential. God has destroyed him so that he limps. <laughs> There's a biblical gospel for you. He knocks his hip out, so he limps. He knocks his hip And he's so dependent on the presence of Almighty God to go with him. He's so dependent on God's promise that he will be with him. What are you saying, Craig? What I'm saying is that what God assured Jacob in the wrestling encounter was not a resolution of his problem. It was the assurance of his personal presence. And let me tell you something. You've got to understand something through prayer. It ain't about you getting the resolution of the problem you bring to God. It's about the restoration of the relationship God wants with you. And so what Jacob got that night wrestling with God was not a resolution to an issue he faced. He got the restoration of relationship and the restoration of relationship with almighty God is a greater blessing than anything we could ever receive in the earthly sense so whatever you're searching for today friend listen to me do you know that it can't replace God do you know it can't replace God listen to me single male you you want the female you want a wife you don't think you can really live until you get hurt let me tell you something God will knock your hip out of socket to get you to understand you can live without her and there is no blessing relationship marriage coming along that is greater than a relationship with almighty God it's the restoration of relationship not the resolution of a problem or let me say it this way Jacob in this wrestling match did not get the resolution of his problem what he got was the restoration of relationship and you're going to have to choose between those two I hate to tell you this but you're going to have to do you demand resolution for your problems or will you get up with the assurance that God's I'm with you is enough you got to get to that point crossroads Paul asked three times, Lord, would you take away the certain blessing? Would you take away the thorn in my flesh? Please, Lord. Finally, God said, no, Paul, no, no. I'm not going to take it away. But my grace or my presence will be with you, so stop asking. Nope, I won't do it. But my presence is with you. God may not promise you you'll get the job. God may not promise you you'll get the boyfriend. God may not promise you he'll heal the person you desire, but he promises himself. He does promise himself. And sometimes the greatest effect of the night of wrestling with God is not a change of your situation. It's a change of your identity. You go from being Jacob who manipulates to Israel who trusts. You go from being self-centered, self-dependent person who manipulates and contrives to becoming Israel who trusts wholly in the hand of Almighty God. Jacob thought that Esau was his primary problem and what he needed God to do was change Esau. But in prayer, Jacob was Jacob's biggest problem and Jacob needed God to change Jacob. And that's what happens when we come to the Lord in prayer. Sometimes in prayer, God changes the situation. Sometimes he changes your identity. And some of you in this room, you said, I would be happy if God changes X. And God's going might, to might say through these 28 days of prayer, I want to change you so you'll be happy whether X ever changes or not. We don't like that answer. That's God's answer. I'm going to change you so that if X never alters, your joy is not dependent on me touching X. Your joy is dependent on me and me alone. Because God himself is the blessing that we seek. Not a, not a resolution, not an issue. It's God. So what do you want most? Sometimes the result of a night of prayer is the restoration of a relationship, not the resolution of your problem. Fifthly and finally, we know that God hears us because he became weak for us. He became weak for us. Come on, team. If you're wrestling with someone a lot smaller than you, like me with my kids, and if you ever wrestle with your kids, you get down on top of them, wrestle with them, piles maybe not with girls well, I got pile up in my house all the time 
Knox uses the bottom. Here's what happens with Knox. When I get on top of him, I actually have to hold myself up because if I lay all of my weight and then we throw Marley, sometimes mom, if she's feeling energetic, will hop on the pylon too. But if I do, I will crush my son. I will crush him. And I don't want to crush them, so I restrain myself. I hold myself up. Church, how much does omnipotence weigh? So when God wrestled with Jacob, he held back almost all of his power. In other words, he voluntarily became weak to wrestle a human being. Jacob should have been crushed, which means God voluntarily held himself back. And in this wrestling match, God becomes voluntarily weak. In that moment, God feigned weakness to bring Jacob salvation. But centuries later, the full weight that Jacob deserved came down on Christ. He pretended to be weak in Genesis 32 so that later the full weight that Jacob deserved would come down on Jesus Christ. Another way I could say this is Jacob held on at the risk of his life to get the blessing for him, but Jesus held on at the cost of his life to get the blessing for us. And all the weight that should have crushed Jacob actually crushed the Son of Almighty God. Why? so we can be sure that he hears us. We can be positive he knows us. He shed his blood for us. So press in. 28 days of prayer. I pray it ignites your prayer life like you've never had your prayer life ignited. That you press. Sometimes I know it seems like God's not listening, but I want to tell you with confidence the cross assures you he is. John Owen, a great author I read, a Puritan author, he said, the greatest insult to God is to doubt his love and compassion for you. After what the cross has shown you, it's an insult to think that God's love is not for you. God cared enough to come down and wrestle with Jacob. God cared enough for us that he came down and took on our flesh and wrestled our sin until my sin squeezed the life out of him now he's united himself to me forever and he says I'll never leave you nor forsake you look at me church you ever feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling you ever feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling come on how many of you ever feel like God's got like reinforced double beam steels in your roof concrete concrete double reinforced difficult you know what God showed me this week it's okay if your prayers bounce off the ceiling because God's not a God way up there. <laughs> he's right beside you. And if it bounces off the ceiling, it'll go right into his ears because he's standing right next to you. God ain't up there. God ain't distant up there. Let it bounce off the ceiling all day long. But it's coming right back down to the ears of the one who gave himself for you. The ears of the one who was crushed for your iniquity. The ears of the one who loves you with an everlasting love. And God says, yes, I will answer from heaven. You can pray with confidence because he was crushed for you. Again, thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at www.dwellingplacemovement.org.